You're listening to The Gulf Stream, where we talk to fascinating guests that want to make the Gulf of Mexico, and moreover, the world, a more sustainable and more beautiful place. Don't worry about getting bogged down in scientific jargon or academic lecturing. On The Gulf Stream, we break down complex ideas into simple yet intriguing subjects that will help you be more informed and perhaps inspire you to create a better environment for all of us. After all, it takes people like you to make a difference in some of the toughest issues facing the earth today. Welcome to the Gulf Stream. This is Jennifer Pollack, Endowed Chair for Coastal Conservation and Restoration at the Hart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies at Texas A&M University Corpus Christi. I stepped in as host for this episode of the Gulf Stream podcast for a conversation with Brad Lomax. Brad is the founder of Corpus Christi's Water Street Restaurants. He is Texas's first oyster farmer, and he's the owner of the Texas Oyster Ranch. In this episode, Brad and I talk about his history in Corpus Christi, surfing the Texas coast, the Sink Your Shucks Oyster Shell Recycling Program, and what it was like to receive the first ever permit to farm oysters in Texas. Enjoy. All right. Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us today on the Gulfstream podcast. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. I guess I will start by saying that keen listeners to the podcast will notice that this is the first episode with a guest host. Uh, even if they don't know my voice, they definitely can tell that I'm not Dr. David Yaskowitz, <laughs> who has hosted all of the episodes up to this point before transitioning into his new role at Texas Parks and Wildlife. So let me introduce myself to our listeners. Sure. Um, my name is Jennifer Pollack. I'm the Endowed Chair for Coastal Conservation and Restoration here mm -hmm. at the Heart Research Institute, and I'm also a professor of marine biology. And our, our guest of honor today, who we're very excited to talk to, I'm going to let you introduce yourself. <laughs> I don't think that I could, I could do it any justice. Please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm Brad Lomax, and I've lived in Corpus Christi actually since 1982. Um, and I'm the founder of Water Street Restaurants and no longer actively involved in that endeavor, running it every day, every day but still very involved. And um, I am the first licensed oyster, cultivated oyster mariculture farmer in the state of Texas. And I'm a huge fan of uh, Dr. Jenny Pollack and Heart Research and Texas A&M Corpus Christi. So I'm, I'm just glad to be here talking to you, Jenny. Great. Well, we are equally as excited and we are going to get into, we're going to dig into all of those parts of about you in our in our talk this morning. So, all right. So I'd like to start, Brad, by asking you to talk a little bit about your history in Corpus Christi. So my sense is that you have become such a champion of Corpus Christi and the Gulf of Mexico because this place is really your home. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the waters of the Gulf sort of flow through your veins. So can you tell us a little bit about your history? So you weren't born in Corpus Christi. Did you get here as soon as you could? Uh, pretty much so. You know, I grew up in San Antonio, but um, we had always come to the coast. We called it the coast in my childhood. And in fact, I had an aunt, my aunt Nell lived over on Brock Street for years. So I was familiar with Corpus uh, and, and especially Port Aransas and, and loved it. I mean, I just always have had sea oats and salt water running through my veins. And uh, when I set out to, I, I, I graduated from college in San Antonio and I worked in the restaurant business for a man up there. But when I set out on my own, um, 
I moved to Corpus Christi because I want to live here. And that, I'm telling you, in the grand scheme of things, that's a lousy site selection process. <laughs> but it's just true. I wanted to live in Corpus Christi. I want to have access to the beaches, bays, and lifestyle of, uh, of the Coastal Bend. Yeah. No, that's great. And I think that it shows in the way that you've really connected this place to all of your businesses. So mm -hmm. I would like to talk about your businesses next. So you've started a number of different ventures around Corpus Christi. Right. And I think, you know, bars, restaurants. Um, Failures. <laughs> some good, We'll talk some about bad. your successes. <laughs> but I, I, one thing that I think is really special about the things that you've done in Corpus Christi is they all really connect to that sense of place. They all really connect to what Corpus Christi is. And also for tourists who are visiting us and residents who live here, they really give us that local flavor. They're sort of like mm -hmm. a defining characteristic of Corpus Christi. So tell, tell us a little bit about how you came about developing your businesses in this way. Well, you know, in the early 80s, when, when I came down here, seafood, I mean, this is ancient history to somebody like you, uh, <laughs> Jenny, but, uh, you know, seafood was not a, not a big part of the dining out diet, and but it was coming on. And there were more and more concepts that I saw regionally, um, nationally that were serving seafood. I wanted to have a seafood restaurant. And, and so... I love Corpus Christi and I love seafood. So, you know, it's it's all kind of me-based at this point. Um, and so I, I developed a menu before I even had a location. I knew I wanted to serve fresh fish. Uh, Paul Prudhomme in New Orleans was developing blackened redfish at this time. And the frankly, the competition, and not just in Corpus Christi, but in other Texas cities, was fried seafood. And that's what everybody's concept of a seafood restaurant was. And I'm not knocking that. I sell a lot of fried seafood, but we wanted to do something different. So I developed I developed that menu and, and it just made sense that, you know, if people come to the coast, you know, they don't, I mean, they come to the coast to, to taste the flavors of the Gulf of Mexico. So as much as we possibly could, we, you know, blackened redfish, but back before the redfish wars and all that, redfish was a pretty iconic um, species down here. Same with Gulf of Mexico, brown shrimp, the best in the country. Um, and so, you know, it just made sense to develop a Gulf seafood concept. It just so happened that the only place I could get a location was on Water Street. But that was, you know, divine guidance because hmm. water is in everything that we do. I mean, seriously. And so so to be on Water Street, once we had that location, there was no doubt what the name of the restaurant was going to be because it tells what we are, who we are, and where we are in one sentence. That's so interesting. That's it. It sounds very serendipitous because it very much was uh, for for folks who know Corpus Christi who are visited probably recognize that Water Street is now essentially a destination with multiple businesses there that really honor um, the Gulf of Mexico and local seafood and Corpus Christi and Corpus Christi. So another thing that I 
have noticed about you is that you're you live this real coastal lifestyle. You're an all around waterman, surfing, fishing, just sort of enjoying living in the coast. Mm -hmm. How has that influenced the way that you've approached the way that you've developed your businesses? Well, uh, that's a good question. I think being called a waterman is the highest compliment you could ever pay me, Jenny. And so thank you for saying that. And uh, there are, there are uh, a lot of others who are more more watermanly than I am. But um, I, I love that moniker. Um, so, you know, you love what you're doing. And, and you love, I, I love what I'm doing, but wh what I do in my business life is, it just is the same thing as my personal life. I don't know if that's good or bad, but my, you know, I have a fish restaurant and I love to fish. You know, I, I have a, I love to surf and we opened the surf museum, you know? And so these things, you know, the, the concept, the executive surf club, that, that came from just a group of, you know, middle-aged people with jobs, who, <laughs> sketchy jobs, but um, who, who went surfing together. So I don't know. It's, it's just kind of all blended together for me. Um, and, and I love it. And so, you know, that is a, that is a water-based, uh, concept that was started by a guy who loved the water mm -hmm. and the the salt water and the salinity and the environment and the wind and the humidity. I love all those things. And now the second generation are my kids who have grown up in that yeah. environment. I, I, my, my kids were fishing and surfing and, you know, Ben, Richard and Lizzie all doing those uh, those activities from the time they were growing up. And so, I don't know. It's hard to define it for me, Jenny. But it's what it what felt natural. It, sounds it, like. it feels. It still feels very natural. And I have to say that even though you know, from your perspective, it might have been sort of a selfish. This is what I like to do, and therefore that's how I developed my restaurants. I'll say from the outside, it also seems sort of like a gift to the community, though, because there are lots of folks born and raised, or moved here, or visiting here who don't necessarily have the depth of experience with the bays and with the Gulf of Mexico. They don't mm -hmm. surf. They maybe have never dipped their toe into the bay. Maybe they haven't gone out on a boat. So to bring them sort of that experience of going mm -hmm. to the surf club and seeing the local history of surfing or going to your restaurant and experiencing what fresh fish come out of our bays, right. I think that can create a connection that otherwise wouldn't be there. And so that's a really special thing that maybe you haven't recognized, but that I recognize that you have done for this city. Well, um, again, thanks. 50% um, of our business comes from outside of Nueces County. So, you know, half of our business in, in, in those restaurants are people who are visiting the area. So, you know, it, it's just, I, I've always said, you know, it's really not, a, our business isn't great because of Water Street. It's been great because of the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. People are coming down here and we and we benefit from that. And so it kind of gets back to the when when uh, Ed Hart, who is a very good customer of mine, I, I'm old enough and been in business long <laughs> enough to remember he come in and eat lunch by himself a couple times a week. And what a fascinating guy. And and here's a guy who, 
he always asked me how business was. And because he knew that my business was dependent on how corpus was. And mm-hmm. corpus is dependent on how the environment is. And so, you know, I, I, I'm not going to claim that, that me and Ed Hart were tight buddies, but I had many conversations with that man. And Ed recognized it. And, and, and thus, you're sitting here and I'm sitting here. Right. And, and, and so I, I'm, uh, I'll tell you how brilliant and, and, and how much foresight I have and all that. I just learned from a lot of good yeah. people. And Ed was one of them. That's some, that's some pretty uh, interesting foresight of things to come. It sounds like those <laughs> conversations. Sure. So we haven't talked about it yet, yet but I want to kind of prompt you to talk a little bit about one of your m- more unique ventures, which is the Texas Surf Museum, which right. has promoted the legacy of surfing specifically in the Coastal Bend, but throughout Texas as well. Sure. How did, how did that idea come about? Well, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a dyed in the wool capitalist. And, and so a lot of this stuff comes from Jenny, how we, what we can do to make our business better. And so we, the, the water street block needed an attraction. We had, you know, good food at, at the oyster bar and good food and fun times at the surf club and the seafood company and all that. But we, we kind of needed an attraction because we figured if we can get people to put foot on our property, we can sell mm-hmm. them a cold beer and a plate of fried shrimp. So, um, and I, I just, Texas surfing is a story that needed to be told. And that sounds bizarre, but you know, all the people that started it are, most of them are still alive and they certainly were alive back in 2004 when we did all this, um, you know, Cecil Laws, who visited Hawaii with his with his parents and and brought surfboards back over here and started renting them on Padre Island. Well, that mm-hmm. story, mm-hmm. you know, Duke Hanamako is mm-hmm. long gone. And the story of the Pacific Coast, you know, some of those guys are, uh, most of those guys, the founders are past. Um, so I wanted to tell that story and it would be a combination of of uh, developing an attraction, a, a reason for people to come to Water Street Market besides to eat. And, you know, just the oxymoron that Texas surf is gets attention. Well, that's true. That's true. I think that people are more familiar, like you're saying, with Hawaii as a surfing destination, Absolutely. California as a surfing destination. Sure. And, uh, you know, not all of Texas, I think, is a place that you can surf. So, sort of honoring and recognizing and telling people that story in Corpus Christi, I think has been great. I've learned a lot. And I'll say personally, having a husband (laughs) who shapes surfboards, I also appreciated sort of the arc that you created with the history of surfing all the way to sort of highlighting and showcasing modern day surfing and surfboard makers. The young guns. In Texas. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's been great and, and, and I love it. And I still think it's a great story and like, you know, these guys are are still with us and they have it's and and the people from California, you know, all the events we've had down here. And we invite all these big names and have hosted a lot of big names from the West Coast surfing world. And they say, man, your waves stink. But this is the best stoke environment we've ever been in. You know, the people in California are rather blase and casual about all this stuff. And down here, I mean, you get 
you get three foot wind chop out there and it's a fist fight to get to the beach. And so I, I don't know. I love that about it. And, and I, I love the, you know, it's Texas and it's surf and we do, there yeah. is surf in Texas. Yeah. And people probably, a lot of people don't know. A lot of people lot don't of people know. know. Okay. Let's shift gears, Brad, because I'm excited to talk to you about something that's very close to my heart. And I, you probably know where I'm going with this. This is the Sink Your Shucks Oyster Shell Recycling Program. For exactly. people who are watching this, they can maybe see our, our oyster shells uh, sitting here next to us at the table. Mm -hmm. So tell tell us a little bit about the Sink Your Shucks Oyster Shell Recycling Program, our partnership, and sort of how, how it all began in 2009. Mm -hmm. Well, as, as you well know, I get a lot of credit for the Sink Your Shucks program, but it was you, Jenny, and Gail who put this thing together. And I've been along for the ride and 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 stepping in front of that camera every chance I get. But, <laughs> well, you can't recycle <laughs> oyster shells without oyster shells. True so that. you're an important part of the process. True that. So so you know the 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 funny part of this is it all began with uh, the upcharges on diesel fuel for our dumpsters back mm -hmm. in 2007, 2008, and gas prices were high back then. And we were getting these ridiculous surcharges based on our weight. And mm -hmm. I, have a, mm -hmm. I have a good friend, Dr. Fox, Dr. Joe Fox, who, who I walk with in the neighborhood periodically. And, and, you know, I will always tell everybody all my woes. And, and I was complaining about it. And he said, um, I think this is before I met you, Jenny. Uh, he said, an oyster shell in a landfill is a resource out of place. And for some reason that resonated with me because I, I didn't, when you look at it as a resource, and then he went on to explain that, you know, the that baby oysters like to land on on the shells of, of the mom and daddies and what the reefs provide in terms of environmental benefit, all that stuff. Uh, but that's really how it became, how it began. And then from there, I'm, I met you and I met Gail and, um, you know, what, 20 acres worth of restored reef later or more? 40 plus, 40 I think. plus. Yeah, 40 yeah. plus acres of those recycled shells, most of them from Water Street. Now are yeah back in the bay creating homes for baby oysters and all the other critters that depend on those reefs. So it's yeah. been a real success. So tell, can you talk to uh, to our listeners about the process? So how do we recycle oyster shells? Like what does it actually mean on a day to day basis to recycle oyster shells? Um, so you you order a dozen oysters at at Water Street Restaurant, you consume them and the busser clears your table. And then instead of going in the trash bins, you know, back in the dish room and all that, those oysters go into a special bin. And so it's a little bit of a process for the restaurants, not huge, but you know, it's, it's an extra step. And then those oysters go out to, um, bins that are out by our dumpster area. And those bins are provided by Texas A&M, Corpus Christi, Heart Research. Um, and then those, and so they're big, probably, uh, I don't know, 800 pound capacity bins. I mean, reinforced by you oh, guys. Yes. I mean, because they're heavy. Those, yeah. those things weigh a lot. And then, and then every 
periodically during the week. Usually this time of year when business is slow, slower, a uh, couple times a week, and during the summer, three times a week, those those uh, those bins are picked up by uh, folks employed up till recently by Heart Research, and I guess still to some degree, those undergraduate kids that were big and strong and, uh, and had no sense of smell would pick those. <laughs> pick those entrepreneurial. Entrepreneurial. That's right. Uh, would would drag those oysters onto a trailer and then taken to a a lot, an area provided by the Port of Corpus Christi. What you guys told me, what I learned in this process is those oysters need to sit out for six months in base, uh, you know, a semi-quarantine to kill any mm -hmm. critters or viruses or anything that's on them. Um, and then from there, and, and you know the port, you got to give the port credit for this. I mean, they they have the bulldozers and they push those into a pile. And um, you know, I love I love those things, but they smell bad. They attract bugs in that quarantine. Oh yeah, <laughs> that quarantine process. You know, um, that takes some doing. And then there are uh, events, bagging events, or redistribution events. I don't know. What, how you want to term it, Jenny, but uh, those oysters, through your efforts, go back into the bay system. And and they're not just willy-nilly dumped out there, and you can talk about this more than I can, but there's a, there's a rhyme and a reason for where and why and when those oysters go back into the bay. Yeah, that's right. You know, I think it's great for folks to hear behind the scenes what happens when their tray of of shucked oyster shells mm -hmm. gets removed from their table, that all of these steps are happening behind the scenes to get those shells back in the water. Right. But you're right, once we take those, that pile of shells that's been sitting out at the port of Corpus Christi, we, uh, we've, we basically have, now at this point, we have a pretty good understanding of the science of the environment where we wanna put these shells back right. and we put them back in the right places at the right times based on the data that we have available. And and we've been very successful in terms of the fact, like you were saying, those shells then provide an attachment surface for the baby oysters, the younger mm -hmm. generations to cement themselves and then create new oyster reef. So it's a, it's a simple process. It's not like disassembling a battery or something like that. You know, the shells that you pick up from the table right. are the same shells that go back in the bay. Right. So here's here here's what here's what I love about it. a couple of things. One, it's a perfect closed loop recycling. It you could very well be eating an oyster today that grew on the back of an oyster shell that was consumed two years ago and recycled back into the bay. Oh yeah, you could very well be doing that. Um, uh, and the other thing is the community involvement. And, and you guys have just been heroes in this, in my opinion, because it, it's not just Water Street, and really it's not just Hart, it's the Port of Corpus Christi. Then we had to talk to Port of Corpus Christi and say, we got a bunch of stinky <laughs> refuse that we wanna dump on some of your property and ask you to maintain it. And then when you when you recycle them, you know, that that there's dozens of people that help in that, and I, you know, That's you've right. got the photos in your in your uh, media stuff that that show people out there standing knee deep in muck, putting oyster shells back That's in, right. and and then so 
every one of those people that's involved in that process knows that those shells came from Water Street. So, man, that's a that's that's the best kind that's of right. top of the mind advertising you can have. And if you eat at Water Street, you know, they're going to take care of <laughs> they're going to leverage your trash <laughs> into next year's crop. But, um, but it's a, just another way of creating those connections, right, between between people and the Gulf where right. we live. And, and I just tell you, I think I think Ed Hart. I'm, I'm again. I'm not. I'm I'm name dropping, but I, that's the kind of thing he envisioned, uh, Jenny. And I, I can't put words in his mouth, but I, I, I just think that he he knew that this area um, thrives, basically survives on the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is a great. This is a great time then. I, I have a quote of yours that I think that actually speaks to this as well, that, you know, not not every businessman in their portfolio of things that they're trying to accomplish in their life adds working with an academic institution or working with a research <laughs> institution. So we have a, a clip from a video um, that you that you were a part of for HRI mm -hmm. um, in the in the last year. And in that video, you said, I'm just going to read you back your own quote. Uh, when you live in a place because of its environment, you want to take care of that environment. How the Gulf of Mexico fared was how we fared in this restaurant. So my question is, what, you know, with that kind of a philosophy, what led you to this interest in working with HRI and reaching out to AM Corpus Christi to develop these deeper connections? Couple, couple things on that. It, it, it's just true. Um, when there's a sargassum outbreak in on the beaches, and I know that's a natural, but business drops. Okay, mm -hmm. if there's a red tide in the bay, and you know, and our feeder markets are San Antonio, you know, Texas cities. That news gets out there. So, so really, you know, if the Gulf of Mexico is not you know, not doing well, neither is we, neither is we, neither is Corpus Christi and neither are we. Um, so that's, that's one thing. Um, I, like other people in this community, fought for expanded education opportunities in, in Corpus. And, and I am a minor player in that whole situation, but I believe very strongly that you don't just you know, get out there and say, yeah, yeah, we need a four-year university and a, and a Gulf of Mexico institution, you then need to help it thrive. And I've, I've, the, that gulf that exists between, oftentimes between the education, the academic community, and the business world is something that I'm convinced we have to eliminate. And we've talked about it, Jenny. You know, we've had all these great ideas and um, nobody will throw money at us. <laughs> but, <laughs> Where are those independent investors? <laughs> Venture but, capitalists. But I, I just think you can't just say, man, we need a business school out there and then ignore the graduates that come out That's of right. that business school. And you can't say Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies is a wonderful thing and then let you guys just be out here on an island without any connection to the community. And so 
I don't know, it wasn't any grand design. I just looked at it as a resource. So I, I don't know, Jenny, you know, I, I, I go on forever. I, I, I believe in education. You know, my daughter is a graduate of Texas A&M, of course, Corpus Christi. My, my friends, I never thought I'd have this many friends that have PhDs, but <laughs> uh, it's all like-minded folks. Yeah. And our business... And, and not just Water Street restaurants, but the the office supply companies and the retailers and all. Our business is dependent on this environment. It just is. Yeah. Okay. So to pick up on our our conversation about sort of the importance and the links between local businesses and academic institutions, sure. research institutes like Heart, I do want to add that I think you're maybe selling yourself a little bit short in this in terms of the the power of having um, business owners, the local community involved in what's happening mm -hmm. at the university. And that's, you know, we're an educational institution here at the university, but not everybody's going to come back and take a class. I mean, how many people come and take a class after they've graduated? So right. I think there's a real need for informal education off of the island. You know, we're an island university and we talk a lot about the need sure. to get off of the island. Sure. So I think that that information sharing and highlighting of what's going on and promoting the benefits of a healthy coast and healthy mm -hmm. seafood and all of mm -hmm. those connections is in a really important role that you have played. You know, you're informal educator, we're formal educators, mm -hmm. but they both play a really important role, I think, in, in understanding and creating local stewards out of our community. I, I agree with that. And, and, and what you all have done Jenny, you know, uh, you've recognized, and, and especially uh, Dr. Miller, you know, what happens in Corpus is important to the university, too. So we That's need right. a vibrant downtown, That's right. and we need a, a sense of place that draws other people to our community, students, business people, you know, retirees. And so right. I, it's... You know, it's not perfect and everybody, you know, you everything's perfect on paper and then you get all the humans involved. But, <laughs> um, you know, you, you all bought a, a building downtown last year. I mean, that's huge. Yeah, that's right. Downtown Corpus Christi. And, you know, the Texas Surf Museum is going to end up being, you know, the archives of Texas A&M University. So, I mean, how cool is, is yeah. all that? And I, I'm just, you know, I'm... I'm one. I'm, I'm. Restaurants are highly visible generally in the community, and we serve all sorts. So, me coming out and speaking to a university class, you know, that's marketing for me. I mean, I love doing it or doing stuff like this. But you know, how many times are we going to say Water Street Restaurants in here or or Texas Oyster Ranch when we get to it? And so, you know, that's right. But you know, uh, I think. People have always said, uh, I hear people say all the time that Corpus Christi is either a small city or a large town, mm -hmm. depending on where you're coming from and your perspective. Mm -hmm. So we're maybe 350,000 now metro area. So I think that each of these, these places and each of these opportunities to highlight these sort of jewels that we have in Corpus Christi are another way that 
as you said, when students graduate from the universities, they want to stay in Corpus exactly. Christi. They feel like this is a place that gives them the things that they want out of their hometown and a place to put down their roots and start their family. So I think that all of these things, they're just so much more important because we're a small city, large town. Well, you know, Jamie, the, the thing that I got to ask a question um, not too long ago in a public forum was, you know, what what would you wish for Corpus Christi? And and you know what I wish for Corpus Christi? Self-esteem. You know, this is a cool place. And maybe it takes somebody who, you know, was born in mineral wells and grew up in San Diego, I'm working my way into the water um, to, to, to see it. You know, it's not for everybody, but, you know, neither is Chicago. Or, and so That's a good point. Um, I, I really, I, and, and what you're seeing now, and I, I see it happening downtown, is people moving to Corpus Christi because they want to live here and they can make a living here and they can make a difference. And, I, you know, that's, you see all those young people down there and young business professionals and and all these groups that I mean you know the to me the downtown business the you know the downtown management district looks like a bunch of seventh graders but there <laughs> is all these young people that are really yeah. stoked and enthused yeah. and the university is a huge part of that yeah I love that I love what you said about not just people not just coming here to make a living but to make a difference I yeah. think that's possible in Corpus Christi because sure. of who we are Okay, I'm going to ask you to shift gears again, but I know that this is something that a lot of our listeners will be interested in hearing you talk about. So let's talk about oyster mariculture. Let's do it. So the Texas Oyster Ranch, mm -hmm. as you said at the beginning, oyster mariculture permit number one right. in Texas. Congratulations, right. I think. That's congratulations. <laughs> so as, uh, as we've talked about today, you are someone who is always willing to try new things. Mm -hmm. You're willing to kind of take the risk to try to see if you can make something work, try new things. So mm -hmm. I imagine that this is what also applied for you with entering the industry of oyster mariculture. So tell us about why you wanted to be an oyster farmer. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, there's an element of truth to Richard was trying to get me out of his hair and so because I kept hanging around those restaurants thinking I was the boss. Um, and this is Richard. I guess we should give some context. Yeah, Richard Lomax, my son, who now who now runs all you know Water Street. So my my older son has his own business uh, called Bus Bar Under the Sun. Mm -hmm. um, he and his wife Leslie, and then Richard uh, Richard runs the the Water Street complex. And my daughter is an educator, married to somebody with Coastal Bend. Uh, bays and estuaries. Adrian oh, that's Hillman. right. Yeah, strong roots in the community. Yeah. Um, so, so it. Richard, Richard kind of asked me about this oyster miracles. He had gone. He had seen something, and so like I always do in these situations, Richard saw something that piqued his interest because ever since the the BP oil spill. Our oyster supplies have been spotty. Mm -hmm. That's probably the best thing I can say mm -hmm. about it. Probably. Anyway, and, and we have oyster in our name. We sell half a million oysters a year. 
So Richard kind of prompted me. So what I do in these situations is I go to Heart Research Institute. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Joe Fox and, and other people, there's a guy up the coast named Bill Balboa, people all, people you know, Jenny, mm -hmm. um, that kind of got me interested in this. And then I, 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 I tell this story, Joe said, take eight minutes of your life and watch a video called Gospel of the Alabama Oyster. That was probably 2017, 2016, mm -hmm. 2017. And if you if you haven't seen it, take eight minutes of your life. And it's just the story of how Alabama developed this, this uh, new industry. It was everything, everything those guys were doing and the people involved, I loved. It was entrepreneurial. It was capitalistic. It had an environmental component that that really was equal to the business side of it. And it was water people making a difference, working, you know, working in their element, water. And so I went, I saw that. Um, I saw that video, and then I went to uh, Murder Point, Alabama, which is the guy in that guy named Lane Zerlot. Lane was very hospitable, um, and he showed me around. Let and, you work for free? Uh, <laughs> yeah, he was very <laughs> hospitable. He didn't pay me a thing. Worked my ass off. Um, and uh, and so, you know, it, that really, wow. And so why aren't we doing this? here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a million answers to that question, just, but the real answer was because we haven't. We, yeah. the only state with a coastline that didn't do it. So I went with Joe and we went and talked to this. It was going to take an act of legislation to, to legalize this process, to legalize this industry. So we went and talked to representative Todd Hunter, a longtime friend, um, and I can tell this story, Todd, I met Todd when he was fixing my wife's tickets because she is a lead-footed woman. And <laughs> that's all the way back to the early 80s. Um, so Todd says, you know, he looked at it and there were some other interested legislators. And, and after a period of reflection, uh, he said, let's do it. You, but, you know, you said we're going to go We're into the Texas legislature. This is 2019. And you have to throw all logic out the window and basically do what I tell you. And I think we can get this passed. And and sure enough, we did. So the the thing I love about it, Jenny, is that we started from it's like. It wasn't even an embryo yet. It was still a gleam in the parent's eye, and we took it all the way through, um, all the way through the legislative process. I mean, do you want me to go on? The sure. So let's say so. You well, maybe this is a testimony te testament to your sort of uh, stubbornness mm -hmm. or willingness to run through walls to get something done. But I mean. Not a lot of people, when they hear, well, this will take an act of the legislature, mm -hmm. says, okay, I'm going to, I'll take on that. <laughs> I'll, I'll take on that fight. So this was, so from 2017, having these early conversations to right. give us the mo more recent history. So now Oyster Mariculture is uh, so allow allowed in Texas. The, I'm, I'm going to go through the whole stuff and you edit out what, what you don't want to hear, but the, uh, Governor signed it into law 
on May 27, my wife's birthday, 2019. And then Texas Parks and Wildlife, who's the lead agency on this, had a year, had 15 months, had until September of 2020 to put the rules together. Well, I, I didn't know that. And, and that's that's a lot of, a lot of, there's five state agencies involved, and, you know, coastal landowners, a lot of interested parties in this. And, and to their credit, Parks and Wildlife, and uh, that's where I first met Emma. I hated Emma at that first meeting. <laughs> <laughs> she, she didn't say yes to all my wants and desires. Um, so that we went through that whole process and came up with uh, the rules and regulations to govern Texas oyster mariculture September of 2020. So then only then could you go out and find a location. And, and uh, man, Jenny, uh, that was a bear. You, you had, you have to be so many feet from an existing oyster reef. You have to be so many feet from an oil and gas operation of which there are millions in our, in our bays. Uh, you have to be so many feet from a bird rookery. Every landowner within a thousand feet of your farm site has to give written approval. So, you know, there are all these hurdles just to get to the lo a location. Let alone it being the right salinity, temperature, and everything to grow oysters, in right? The, the, all these that, things yeah. come first. The, <laughs> the, the, real, the real meat of things, so to speak, yeah. is, you know, the, the science and the environment. Yeah. So, you know, we went through all that. January of 2021 now, I guess we are, we started, we made our application. And and then you have to come up with the business plan. You know, we were the first ones. And, you know, I think it would, it probably shouldn't be because for, you know, for ego reasons, but it was important to me to be the first one because we, you know, we, we dreamed this thing up for Texas and um, we being you and me, you know, by this time you're involved and, and this institution's involved and, you know, we're having meetings here, I, all sorts of research going on. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I got the fur. I have my, my permit number is 0001. And so uh, we have the first cultivated oyster mariculture permit. Um, we stocked our first seed in... Oh, God, November of 2021, so a little over a year ago. And then the real learning curve, you know, we, <laughs> we did uh, tell people it's like having food truck experience and opening a 500-seat restaurant. You know, all of a sudden we said, well, we, you know, we want a lot of oysters, so we bought a million and a half. And, you know, there's a whole, the learning curve of the first year was brutal was deep brutal financially well let me let me ask you a couple of questions about this specifically because i have a lot of questions about how this process has worked okay so so you're number one your permit number one which means you are literally breaking new ground every day yep. building the plane as you're flying it i'm sure you know you're a pioneer but there's nobody who's come before you in texas so i imagine okay. you've you've taken a lot of information from visiting um, the oyster farmer in Alabama. I'm sure you've done all the research that you can before you get started. But so you you have a permit, mm -hmm. you have a place on the bay where you can now 
begin your farming. Right. So tell us, you know, what's involved in the farming process? What do you do first? Where did this, you, you mentioned that you put seed in the water. You didn't just sprinkle them in the water, right? right? So to somebody who's never seen a picture of an oyster farm or seen a picture of your oyster farm, what does it look like? Where do the oysters come from? One of the things we had to determine and, and actually switch in midstream was what was the, you know, equipment that we were going to use. And we ended up, because because of all the restrictions, we're in 7 to 10 feet of water in Copano Bay. So we use what is a floating cage system, which is essentially, you know, it's like a... a a big upside down cage with bags of oysters in it and and floats on the top. So Texas has has and in, in, in their wisdom, I believe, uh, has determined that you should you can't grow any oyster um, in Texas waters unless it comes from Texas broodstock. And so it has to be hatched from Texas broodstock. Well, that's well and good, but there are no hatcheries in Texas. This is the first. So we had to find an institution, in this case, Auburn University, and we sent Copano Bay broodstock, FedEx 200 oysters to uh, to uh, the folks down there in Dolphin Island. So these these broodstock, let me just stop you. So these are the adult oysters are, from Copano Bay. Right. Who can be the moms and dads of yep. your babies. Yep. Okay. So they go to Auburn. They go to Auburn on a, on a uh, airplane, and then Auburn spawns them. And, and I still not. I mean, I know the life cycle, but I don't know how you get an oyster spawn. <laughs> Um, there, well, you cha you change the temperature. Yeah. Blue you velvet. play romantic music. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and so I'm I'm glad you're doing this because it's you know there's a lot to this process. So they they spawned, hatched, and grew out to six millimeters, the size of the end of your little finger. Mm -hmm. uh, about one and a half million baby oysters. And then okay. we drove down there in a refrigerated vehicle and picked them up and drove them back. So how much space does one and a half million baby oysters that are six millimeters look like? Does that take up a truck? Does that take up a, you know, my my coffee mug that's sitting here? It's it's about if you can imagine a restaurant bus tub, you know, two by three, something like that. It took 11 restaurant bus tubs filled about halfway up with baby oysters to bring them back. So, you know, I would say you could, with all the seats folded down, you could probably stack 11 in a Suburban. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's so just... These are itty bitties. Yeah, they're tiny. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, how do you know you're getting a million four? <laughs> well, I mean, you just you do the best you, you can. trust. Yeah, <laughs> you trust, you know. Um, and then... Those go, and so you can imagine with a tiny oyster like that, um, they go in tiny mesh bags because they, they, those bags hold the oysters, and there has to be water flow through those bags because that's how the oysters feed. Mm -hmm. I'm telling the PhD in oysterology <laughs> how it works, but... Um, and so, so and you put them right into the bay in these mesh we, bags. We put them right into the bay, okay. and, and it was a rough day. And but we had to get them in the water. You know, they can't sure. at that age. Uh, they're like any other organism. You know, they're when they're young like that, they're vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So um, we 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 put them in, and then and then when you put them in 
the first stocking, you know, there's probably 10 or 12,000 oysters per bag. You know, that's, that's, there's, you can put a lot of oysters in a small mesh bag. The problem is the damn things start growing. <laughs> and you, and I, I, this is a, this a reference you're too, too young for. <laughs> you hope for. they start growing. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, if, you, if you've ever seen the I Love Lucy, where Lucy and Ethel have got the conveyor belt and the <laughs> chocolates keep coming out, well, that's it. I mean, they grow, and you have to split them, and you have to divide them up. So anyway, that's part of my, my learning curve. But so where are we? We're, we've got them in the bay. We, we put... 36 cages out there with six bags each and each bag had you know however many oysters in there to put a million plus oysters in the water so does a million plus baby oysters in the water mean a million plus plate sized oysters at the end of the process or is this part of the learning curve to know how many are going to make it out the other end tradition i mean historical decent farm people who know what they're doing say that it's a uh, 10 to 20% mortality okay. so so a million oysters should yield 750 800,000 okay. oysters I, okay. I killed 80% uh, and I, I you know I'm, I'm not proud of that but it just it, it just got away from us and um, so as, as they grow, you have to keep dividing out those, uh, bags. And as you divide out the bags, you have to add more cages. And so all of us, and everything's exponential. So you go from, from 12 cages to 24 to 48 to 96 to whatever, you know, and, and, and honestly, I, I should never, and I, people told me this, but you know. Uh, I know everything <laughs> until I don't. Um, now you do. Uh, now I do. You know, start small. Yeah. And but you know, we had a lot of investing yeah. in this thing with tons of enthusiasm. Hired a guy, you know, thought had the right experience, and uh, just, I mean, we're selling oysters. So so all the way around, you know, all the mortality we experienced and the loss and all that stuff. Um, you know, we. I, in July of 2022, we sold our first oyster uh, that we that we've grown at Water Street Oyster Bar. That's fantastic. It is, it, and and, and so, next year will be easier. Knock on wood, mm -hmm. and hopefully the year after that will be easier. And you're also, you know, blazing a trail. So the the folks who are going to start getting into the industry because they've seen your success and seen what has gone well and what has gone wrong. And mm -hmm. those lessons that you share are also going to sure. pay dividends, I think, for others and for the industry as a whole. So I wanted to just clarify one thing before we get off this topic, and that is about splitting the oysters. So mm -hmm. so for, as from the science perspective, my understanding of why you would go from many very tiny oysters in a bag to fewer very large oysters in the bag is because they're filter feeders and they need to filter feed right. the, their food out of the water. Is that the reason why you're splitting them to give them ample food so they're not competing with each other so much for the water that's flowing through those cages. Right. And they grow. And so if you if if you don't 
they'll bust out of those caves, literally split those bags wow. with their growth. Wow. And that, and the you know the the strong ones, you know the fast growers will crowd out the weak. And and it it happened to us, Jenny. I mean, I, I I'm still dealing with bags that we did not have the right density in, and and. Uh, and then you add, we had a really good spat set, which is another, mm-hmm. you know, some jargon, but the wild oysters, you know, were pretty healthy this year in Copenhagen Bay. So we had wild oysters clinging to our equipment out there. And, and you know, the, the, the axiom in this business is flow means grow. And so anything that inhibits flow, whether it's overcrowding, too small a holes or other creatures getting on your your mesh nets that inhibits flow. Um, it's a problem. Means no grow. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. Well, I feel like you've become a. I mean, this sounds like marine biologist training on the job mm-hmm. because you're seeing probably different seasons of organisms that are like you're saying they're spawning and then they're attaching themselves onto your gear and i imagine that changes over the course of the year exactly it's probably interesting but also you know good handle on the health of the bays too yeah yeah you know seriously i mean we're we're out there every day and i'm i'm just it's not always this way right now copano bay is healthy water is green and uh and there's lots of organisms out there and had a great spat set and i mean literally we could see the bottom in eight feet of water earlier was this month or in december we were we were out there and you could see the bottom so i you know i of course want to take credit for everything but uh you know it it's it's good to be able to say you know it's good to be able to tell your customers in the restaurant and these are coming from this this oyster tastes like Copenhagen. Yeah. yeah. Well, so maybe this is, we we have just a short period of time left. So, but I don't want to end this discussion without talking to you about one more thing. So a long time ago, we had a conversation where you used a phrase that I thought was so interesting. Mm -hmm. So lots of folks have probably heard these phrase, uh, farm to table or field to table, or, you know, are aware that people are much more interested in knowing where their food is coming from or buying their food from farmers markets and really supporting, you know, eating what's local. Sure. And you used a term called bay to table, that you right. really had this bay to table philosophy. So I think that so I have questions about how you develop this bay to table philosophy, but the the other part which relates to what you just said is that this also sort of goes into this foodie debate that you hear about wild caught versus farm raised mm-hmm. um seafood. So you hear about it for shrimp, salmon, and now I think we'll start to hear about it with oysters. But so talk to me about bay to table and how customers feel about eating a farm raised oyster that they know where it's coming from in the bay that can have a local flavor associated with it because of the water that it grows in. Are you finding that this, that customers appreciate farm raised ranched Texas oysters as a bay to table sort of way of lifestyle of eating? Yes, I I do. I I think one of the things that really got my attention years ago was it started in, I don't know what, you know, 2010 or something. Uh, Conventions would want to know what your, you know, not your environmental footprint, but what kind of 
environmental initiatives were involved mm -hmm. in your community before they would book a convention. You know, and that was new to me. And that was the, you know, the farm to table. And, and then, of course, it just made sense to go. Yeah, people have choices. They do. And so I, I love the fact that we can say these drum were, you know, caught by, you know, Kenny down in the Laguna Madre, you know. And so yeah. there's a story. If you can tell a story to your guests, it enhances their dining experience. So the difference between us and those other, and, and I think aquaculture and fish farming and shrimp farming is the future. We've, it's just going to happen. But um, you have to feed those creatures. My, my, my saying is God feeds the oysters and we don't, and we just enhance that. So, you know, our, our oysters live in exactly the same environment that the wild oysters do. They eat exactly the same uh, food and their their body processes are exactly the same. All we're doing is kind of corralling them in in an area and, and in fact pulling them off the bottom, which is which is a cleaner, uh, more attractive product. You don't have all the yeah. biofouling. Oh, that's my word. Well I think that that's actually something really good for listeners to hear about oyster farming or oyster mariculture, oyster ranching, is that these aren't being fed a, an artificial feed. They're mm. eating phytoplankton from our bay waters exactly. just like the wild-caught oysters are. Okay, let's talk about how the Texas Oyster Ranch can provide opportunities, educate, training for people who are interested in getting involved in oyster mariculture in Texas. So are there opportunities for folks to get involved, to come out and spend some time <laughs> turning oyster cages or schlepping oysters around? What, what could people do? Are there opportunities to get involved? Uh, there are. And, 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 and Ginny, we're building an industry here. Okay, so we need. I prefer people who have strong backs and, and, can, <laughs> and can get dirty uh, but can see the bigger picture. And, and yes, we're hiring. I need two full-time people right now, 40 bucks an hour. Uh, I mean, 40 hours a week, uh, 15 bucks an hour, that. 40 bucks an hour. Yeah. Uh, don't tell Keith. Um, and, and we, we need people right now, but if you're involved in marine biology or oyster mariculture or part, you're looking for a part-time job that will, that will enhance your education, Come to us. I, you know, not only are we are we an enterprise and we have sales and we have profit and loss statements, you business students, but we I've got three and probably soon to be four research projects taking place on the farm, with with uh, Texas A and M AgriLife, uh, Kirk Camerata here with A and M Corpus Christi. I'm talking to Michael Wetz with Heart. Research Institute and then NOAA. So this, I mean, this is part of our work day is we got to go out and take samples for these folks. That's great. And so, yeah, and 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 so let's build an industry. So no, no experience needed in oyster mariculture. If folks are interested, they could. We'll put some information on the Gulf Stream podcast website. So if people want to get in contact with you, they know how to do that. Please. What about things like uh, summer internships for students who are, you know, looking for additional training or looking to even get in the water? 
I, please. I mean, I, 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 I need, I need help. I need, I need, uh, like I said, strong backs uh, and a willingness to to get dirty with this. But I prefer people that have an eye see where we're going. You know, the, Jenny, just think about it. I mean, I, I heard in late last year that the global population hit eight billion. So what we have right here is an opportunity to produce a delicious protein that enhances the environment. And we, and we don't use the word sustainable out there. I think it's, it's overused. We are, we are restorative mariculture because what we do is creating a, a food product that is consumable, desired and consumable, uh, and, and in doing so, we improve the environment. I, I don't, you know, is there anybody else that does that? Probably, but I don't know it. Uh, so let's do it. And so I, I can, you know, I can, I can always use the labor, but I'd like to have the vision and the realization and the uh, commitment to, to building an industry as well. Yeah, I think that's great. And I love your uh, your comment about restorative mariculture. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as we were talking about earlier, these oysters don't require you to put any feed in the bay, for example. Right. Just by adding these oysters in your cages, you're improving local water quality. They filter enormous amounts of water through their feeding um, activities. The so they're, they're really giving back as well. The fishermen out there love us because they know what we're doing. The crabbers, you know, the crabbers, the guys out there, you know, crusty old hoss, the crab man out there, and that's a real person, says, you know, you're, I'm glad to see you guys out here. You're you're doing what's needed to be done that's in great. this bay for decades. I so. mean, you're starting conversations that wouldn't be started otherwise. I mean, you're really showing what can be done in an industry that has not existed until, what did you say, January of... When did you put your first batch of oysters in the water? November of 2021. November of 2021. November 5th. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. This has, I've learned so much from you about oyster farming. I was thinking that if I were two plus decades younger, I might choose a different career. This sounds just fascinating and such a wonderful way to be in the water. So let's turn our eyes to the future now. Let's mm -hmm. talk about some of the exciting things on the horizon. So we talked about the beginnings of Water Street. It's the 40th anniversary coming up for Water Street Oyster Bar, Water Street Restaurants. Can you talk to us a little bit about your plans for the future? Well, you know, honestly, Jenny um, and I, and I've said this before, future's not in my hands. I mean, I, I, I want to be here for it, and I'm excited <laughs> about it, but future's in your hands, and the future's in Richard Lomax's hands, and the Texas A&M Corpus Christi student body and the grad students at HR, that's where the future is. And so, and, and, and I'm excited about it. And I, I hope, I don't want to, you know, we're, I'm, I've said it before, I'm a capitalist and I believe in business and I believe in providing jobs and I believe in, in profit. But I don't believe that that is exclusive of taking care 
of your environment, taking care of where you live. And so what I see out there is more opportunities like this. I think the Port of Corpus Christi is doing a great job, and I'm not just blowing smoke, but they they have, you know, they deal with volatile substances, but they also deal with taking care of, of what we do and what we have. So I, I think the future is... You know, I don't, it's, it's up to you guys. I think that uh, we have we have all we have problems, but we had problems a hundred years ago when we couldn't get around the United. We didn't, we didn't know how to fly. American ingenuity and and sure. youthful ingenuity will fix those problems. And I think you know you do such a good job of acknowledging the contributions of others in Corpus Christi. You've mentioned the port several times, Ed Hart several mm-hmm. times. You know, I think that, and you as well, your efforts, all these groups have really planted the seeds, right? You're saying, I'll be here for the future, but I don't have to be the one who's kind of driving the bus in the future. I think the importance of what you've done and these other entities is that is sort of planting the seeds so that people who are coming behind you can see there is a way to develop Mm -hmm. businesses that also are supporting the environment. You know, you've right. sort of shown that, it, or you have shown that it, it can be done. And mm-hmm. so even if you're not the one who's going to continue all of that work and shouldering all of that in the future, I think it has opened a new door and maybe revealed a new path forward for people who feel that way and now see, oh, I can make a difference, make a living in the coastal bend with, and also, you know, create a, a, a better community for my family and sure. for the people who live here. So I really appreciate that. Can you tell us uh, what a legacy that would be if that, if that were to come true, yeah. uh, you know, it, it would, it would be amazing. I, I, I think so. I think we're already seeing it, it come true. So one of the sort of celebratory um, events coming up that you have planned on the horizon is the Texas oyster roundup. Right. So, when I think about the Texas Oyster Roundup, I'm thinking about a, a gathering to get people together to sort of celebrate all the things that we've talked about today. Can you tell us a little bit about your ideas for the Texas Oyster Roundup? What's this going to be? Well, I, I think it's... What can a, we expect? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's 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 a celebration. And again, I'm not going to deny we want to get people on the on the grounds of Water Street Market. It's like we do a Surf Pilber Fest. Um, and so, but there's... I don't know what it is, Jenny, and I haven't figured out why yet. There's a cachet around oysters. I mean, you say you're an oyster farmer, and, man, you got 50 friends immediately, you know, and you got to tell the story, which is great. Um, so so let's use this Texas Oyster Roundup, which is going to be a, a springtime celebration of of Water Street Market and what we do, the product that we deliver, um, and and educate people. We're gonna have speakers like yourself and and others, and we're gonna have live music. So there's gonna be a lot of components to it. But here, here's my dream: the coastal bend should own this new industry, Jenny. You know, this started here, started in this building right here, and Todd Hunter carried the legislation, and we have the first oyster culture permit. Texas AgriLife is the first hatchery permit. This should be the coastal bend. And I'm not xenophobic, and I, I you know, I'm, I'm territorial, but, <laughs> you know, this is, we should own this. And so sure. I think the Texas Oyster Roundup 
is another step in let's let's reclaim the oyster business. You know, we all yeah. I mean, I grew up yeah. coming down to Fulton and buying oysters, you know, my parents buying oysters off the dock in Fulton. Mm -hmm. Well, let we can do that again. Yeah. And we can do it with hatcheries and nurseries and oyster farming operations and you know cage equipment manufacturing let's build this industry so that's you know yeah it's great and how you know from my perspective it's sort of like how does corpus christi not have a seafood festival already mm -hmm. to celebrate all the these mm -hmm. things that we're talking about that people appreciate about coming to the coast and eating fresh seafood right. so i love that this creates connections both to local businesses but also again the importance of this bay environment to support this way of life so I think it's wonderful. And we, we're hoping actually from HRI to have some sort of active restoration stations. We can get people involved who are interested in habitat restoration, bag up some of those recycled oyster shells we talked about at the top of the podcast and really have people, you know, put their fingerprint on some of those shells that are going back in the water to rebuild reef. Once again, it's, it's that community outreach. Yeah. It's you guys, it's, you know, the, the, uh, recreational fishing community yeah. is going to be heavily involved and so it's cool, I, cool. I i love it and and you know it's sometimes you go out there and your cage is sunk and you're dirty and you, it's nice to hear and talk with you about the bigger picture and yeah. and why why i sometimes come home smelling like a biofouled <laughs> piece of marine debris. Marsh mud or, yeah. <laughs> Marsh mud. Well, so tell us before we finish here, besides the, the Texas Oyster Roundup this spring, is there anything else that's on the horizon for Water Street and Texas Oyster Ranch? Well, I mean, Richard, my son, Richard Lomax is, uh, you know, I mean, the Lomax family is committed to downtown and there's a lot going on. Richard's opening a couple of concepts down there, a, a bakery, and I think probably a Tex-Mex here pretty soon. Uh, ben and Leslie are uh, are expanding bus and they're and they're adding a kitchen. Um, you know, we've developed, we've evolved uh, into the Texas Surf Conservancy, and, and you know, Jenny, back at the Surf Museum, you were you and and Jeff and. This whole community, I hear Paul Montagna, very helpful to us as we would develop speaker series and things. You know, there's more to surf than paddling out on our board. You know, it's it's hydrodynamics or, you know, wave action and jetties and salinity and all that. So um, I think, you know, for for me personally, I think what you'll continue to see is a, uh, a further commitment for my family uh, to... Corpus Christi, particularly downtown Corpus Christi, and and I don't know. I mean, what what's this industry going to look like in five years? You know, yeah. I I don't. I'm not scared of competition. I want people to to develop. We need more. We need 15 oyster farms, not three. So, in your uh, your mind's eye, looking into the future, into your crystal ball, is there a time not so far down the road where? we can go to Water Street and we can get uh, a tasting platter that instead of having an oyster from the Pacific Northwest and an oyster from the Northeast, we could have a platter of different oysters coming from different bays in Texas that represent all the flavors of our coast? Absolutely. I think we're starting that. 
I told you I'm going to Austin on Monday the 9th, and and uh, Hannah Kaplan, who's got the second oyster farm up there in Galveston Bay, and David Aparicio, we're going to have a a side by side tasting up there with Copano Galveston and and uh, Matagorda. And so, yeah, I, and and people are already people love, you know the the beauty of this whole thing is it's the the Copano oyster is delicious. They, you know, talk about the health. The Copano Uno. The Copano Uno. It's number one. Um, but that salinity that we've got now, we can talk about how the salinity went to zero my first year. Um, but um, people are asking for it. And so, you know, we're already creating demand. And Richard doesn't want me to sell. Richard, wa <laughs> Richard wants it to be like Coors beer. When we were growing up, Coors beer could only be, you could only get it in Colorado or someplace. <laughs> so they have to come to Corpus to get yeah. the Copenhagen. You know, so. Yeah, I love that idea. I can already see the lines out the door. I mean, I feel <laughs> like no one is going to love a Texas oyster as much as a Texan, but it's uh -huh. also going to be such a... I mean, this idea of it really being something that is locally served as well is mm -hmm. another one. You know, come visit our wonderful city and taste something that you can only get here. Right. I love the idea. Well, tell Richard to pay up for the damn things <laughs> and, <laughs> and well, beat me up on price. That sounds like something to keep in the family. <laughs> okay. Well, Brad, thank you so much for spending all this time pleasure. with me today. What I've pleasure. learned so much. We've known each other for such a long time, but I also just learned so much from hearing from you today. So... Thank you for that. And then for the listeners, thank you for joining us. And then please stay tuned for more episodes and, and possibly even more guest hosts on the, I need people. I need a job. I need, if you want a job, come see me. I will put you to work. We're going to send them your way. Right. Yeah. And check out our website. We're going to put Brad's phone number on there. More than a paycheck. <laughs> you will get more than a paycheck if you work for us. I promise you. All right. Thank All you right? so much. Okay. Thanks for listening to The Gulf Stream. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help make a difference in the Gulf by contributing to the Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies research and efforts to create healthier coastal and marine ecosystems. Visit heartresearch.org, that's H-A-R-T-E research.org for more information. Please note, the views and opinions expressed by guests of the Gulf Stream do not necessarily reflect the views of the Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies or Texas A&M University Corpus Christi. It is our mission to be an honest broker, providing only science-based solutions to Gulf of Mexico problems and other environmental issues. This podcast is intended to provide our guests with a safe and open forum for them to express themselves freely.